the Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Not an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, oh, that's a very good question. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky team. <laughs> Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. program. This is Bear Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we roll into the third half of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour has a uh, different family history to tell than my previous guests on uh, today's show. He is... um, a New York Times best-selling cookbook author, and he's now uh, sharing his personal story in a poignant new memoir about adoption, sexuality, and the ways even the great works can drive us mad. The uh, name of the book is uh, Bookmarked, How the Great Works of Western Literature Effed Up My Life. I'm not kidding. That's the actual title. It's by Mark Scarborough, who joins me by phone. Hi, Mark. Welcome to the show. Hi, Tom. I love the way that people have to handle the subtitle of that book. I, it just makes me smile every time <laughs> that I set a problem with that certain word in the subtitle. <laughs> well, it's not what uh, what I would describe as a radio-friendly title, but I think no, we, but I think we all get the message. Yes, I think so, too. It was quite a struggle to get an editor to let that title stand as it was. And uh, (laughs) it just always makes me smile to think that I've kind of put a stumbling block right in the title. What can I tell you? I've I've run into that a couple of times um, with uh, all the... uh, S word, you know, and mm-hmm. having mm-hmm. having the asterisk to fill in a letter or mm-hmm. two. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll just leave it at other four letter words that made it into titles. But do you think that that attracts more people to the story? 
I don't know if it attracts or detracts. Part of the problem is we used an asterisk in the actual title and, in fact, even in the copyright title because, believe it or not, if we, uh, this is kind of silly, but if we had written the word out and not used an asterisk, then the Library of Congress must file the book under pornography, and the book is the farthest thing from pornography. <laughs> <laughs> So we had to use an asterisk to get around the rules of the Library of Congress in the United States. But uh, be, be that as it may, I think that the, the, the word certainly makes the title jump off the page and uh, certainly catches someone's attention. And I guess as an author, that's the best you can hope for. Well, just on, a, on another kind of a side note, um, talking about, the, uh, about some of those... Um, those quirky federal laws and, mm. and copyright laws and so on. Mm. Um, Alan Sherman has wrote a book, and I don't know if you know who Alan Sherman is. He's the guy I who... I do. I do know. Hello, Mutta, Hello, Fada, and so on. Yeah, he wrote a of book called Rape of the Ape, A-P-E, with asterisks in between, which was short mm. for American Puritan Ethic, and the whole book is an mm. examination of those quirky mm. laws. Mm. Mm-hmm. It, anyway, it's kind of fun. I thought you might might be interested in that. But let me let me ask you this. And this <laughs> goes <laughs> well, let me just say before you get there that I'm I am married to a New Yorker and I have had to listen to more Alan Sherman than I ever <laughs> had to listen to <laughs> again in my life. <laughs> so there you go. Aspirin commercials give me headaches. Anyway, um, but getting back, getting back to the title again for a moment. Mm-hmm. How the great works of Western literature effed up my life. That's almost like an oxymoron to most people, Mark, it, because because people think of reading the great works as expanding themselves, and here you're saying it kind of screwed up your life. And it it is expanding, and I don't. My experience is not everyone's experience, but I think part of what my memoir explores is the danger in this thing we think is inherently good. You know, I don't know, name it Middlemarch or um, <laughs> I don't I, I I don't know Tom Jones or uh, Pride and Prejudice. These things that we think are inherently good. They carry all kinds of internal messages with them. And unfortunately, the way I was reared, and you'll notice that I was reared in the South as a proper boy, so I say reared and not raised. The way, the way I was reared... <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's even more true of <laughs> Texas, isn't it, Mark? It is true. <laughs> I, I, was, I was reared to expect messages from books. And so I became incredibly susceptible to what I thought of as this insane, well, I think of what became this insane reading process to find the quote-unquote meaning of my own life. So it, it, I, I like the idea that I'm toying with something that, and did toy with something that is, of course, as you write, inherently good. Who wouldn't want to see their kids sit down and read a classic novel? And yet, at the same time, for me, it proved to be an extraordinarily dangerous activity. 
But I have to ask, Mark, because you were raised by evangelicals. I was. I reared, excuse me. Um, <laughs> sure. And, and the moral of a story is an absolute to be followed, not a mm. concept to be explored. Mm. So some mm. people would look at it, and, and this is a question I ask a lot of writers, Mark, is, you know, does the does the story you're telling, and most people that write books are telling stories, yep. does it have a moral? You know, is there something you're trying to impart on civilization? And and sometimes there are, and, you know, some are more profound than others, and, you know, as you would expect. But the idea always seems to be the moral is out there to be considered and factored in as someone makes their own choices about what their morality will be. Mm. Mm. Yes, fair enough that. And, but, and, I'm, and I'm not trying to trip you up here, Mark. I'm just. No, no, no. I'm, no, I'm actually not. trying to get at were you set up to read books maybe the wrong way? I, I might have been set up to read them as a, uh, the wrong way. But I think a lot of people, you know, how do I say this? Literary studies and the way we approach books, it's still even to this day in Western culture, it comes out of the way, just to be honest, medieval monks approached the biblical text. That is, they approached it as a source of authority from which they could derive moral lessons. And we still to this day in Western culture often practice reading on that level. We may do it subliminally. I know it's hard to think about how you approach a, I don't know what, you know, some uh, some unbelievable uh, romance novel, as they call them in the industry, bodice rippers. Some bodice ripper <laughs> for a moral in some way. But in fact, it's all there, and it's all sitting out there. And we approach books, especially the great books, as systems, that sounds fancy, but systems of authority. And while I was particularly set up to do that in my upbringing, it's, I think it's the way everyone does. I, I just came off eight weeks, and so lest you think I've left these things behind, I just came off eight weeks of teaching uh, George Eliot's Middlemarch. And uh, I will confess that I kicked Eliot a bit. I think she can withstand my kicking. But I kicked <laughs> her a bit for Middlemarch and for some of the problems that Middlemarch falls into. And I could see people in the class become consciously uncomfortable daring to kick this great canonical writer, George Eliot, for certain things that I see as flaws in Middlemarch. And some people got very hostile about it. And that only says to me that, again, we're all looking for meaning, and we are all kind of still taught, even in this social media weird world we live in, we're still trying to taught to see the print book or maybe the ebook as some kind of authority structure in well, I was, some way. you know i was thinking as you were as you were talking mark about um a a guy who's been on my show many many times ultra ultra conservative um in fact he kind of makes ayn rand look like a hippie but wow. um 
and and he is extremely well read and he quotes from all of the stuff that he's read as if it's gospel and i mm. keep i keep asking him well how do you know the person who wrote the book was right mhm that's right and I, and that's, that's the a, thing we I, need to do is is question literature i think it's the hardest thing to do because of course we all listen we all want stable ground and i wanted stable ground as a kid and so once i fell into reading i was not a natural reader as a kid by any stretch of the imagination but once i fell into reading i fell into this world in which i thought well my particular problem was i thought as an adopted child if i read enough i would find the timeline that i belonged on because as an adopted kid <laughs> no, an adopted feel, kid, do you feel like you've just been sort of dropped in the middle of a story yes as a as a as a as an adopted kid you feel as if you have been dropped into an ongoing story that's not really yours and it's just like when you're reading a book you know when you read, read a book let's say you read some book that you love and you're just you're just into it and you're sitting there in the chair and you're you know you're so deep into this book and you love it and we probably all felt this that you you're so into it that you look up and for a brief second you think wait where am I? You know, like two hours have passed, an hour and a half passed, and I've been reading. And Wait, where am I again? And then, of course, you turn back to the book. That experience right there is what it's like to be an adopted kid. Is every once in a while you look up and think, wait, where am I? And then you go back to the story you're in because it's the story you've got. And it has this, it had this wild uh, what am I going to say? It was a wild fascination for me that if I could read enough books, I might find the timeline that I belonged on. Now, I realize my <laughs> my book's allegedly about the great works of Western literature, and as it, as it goes in my book, the first book I read is The Stepford Wives, which I don't know that The <laughs> Stepford Wives <laughs> are the great works of Western literature. But The Stepford Wives was my downfall because of those automatons, those, those robot women in The Stepford Wives felt a lot like me. They felt like replacements. And I felt like a placeholder or a replacement in a story that wasn't my own. If that makes any sense, it does. In, in fact, it uh, makes me wonder if some of these stories um, that that you read, uh, if they had an impact on you wanting to answer questions you had about your own origins. And and I want to get into that and more about the book, Mark. But I have a break coming up here in a minute. Can you stick around for a few minutes so we can Perfect. talk more? Of course. My guest is Mark Scarborough. He is uh, normally a cookbook author, but you know today we're talking about how great Western literature screwed up his life, uh, <laughs> as he as he explains it in his new book, Bookmarked. Anyway, we're going to let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. They are WFOV ninety two point one LPFM Flint. 
And uh, if you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms, and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Hawaiians. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Hello. Speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed! It's a robocall! Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate, but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, File a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know Janine's daughter is a doctor. 
she calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. And the Tom Sumner Program. Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue my conversation with New York Times bestselling cookbook author, uh, Mark Scarborough, who has uh, authored a new book, a memoir, if you will, called Bookmarked, How the Great Works of Western Literature Effed Up My Life. And he joins me by phone. Mark, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around, and sorry to make you sit through all that. Oh, Tom, that's okay. The bills must be paid, so (laughs) (laughs) no worries. (laughs) Speaking of that, um, what was it that made you want to share your pain with the world did you did you did you run out of recipes <laughs> no in fact uh, in fact we have uh, i write cookbooks with my husband bruce weinstein and he is the chef and i'm the writer and we have a cookbook due in about 15 days from right now so no we haven't run out of recipes uh, we just had a cookbook published last month so and a new one, again, that's due in about 15 days to the publisher. So, no, we haven't run out. I, I, I don't actually know why I started down this road. I'd like to tell you that I started down it because I wanted to say something about myself that might be true. It, it really, the whole project started with uh, an, a lunch with our literary agent, and I made some comment about, uh, I've always had this weird relationship with books and the books I read. And, of course, she thought I was talking about cookbooks. And I said, no, no, you know, Jane Austen and <laughs> F. Scott Fitzgerald, which she looked at me like I was insane, which perhaps. And anyway, she said to me, well, write something and see if you can't get it placed in this industry magazine, Publishers Weekly, where authors and editors rant about the industry. Well, I did. I wrote it and I placed it to, I think, both of our great surprises. And so she then said, well, you want to go on with this now that you've placed this idea out there on an industry website? And I kind of said, yes. And it was a very long process because I have much else to do in my life and much else to do in publishing in my life. So it took me a long time to make this work. But I, I wanted to write about the search for home and the attempt to find home and this long quest I went through, unlike Odysseus or other people, other people, I wanted to write this law, this quest I went through through the great books to try to find something called home. And didn't didn't these books, in some way, inspire you to search for home or? Even even more specifically, to, to search for your birth mother? 
No, they got in the way because what they did is they taught me that I could kind of, uh, as it were, make it up and lose any kind of, to use a fancy word, lose any kind of authenticity in the search. And they actually, in the end, blocked me. And um, I think one of the things that's hard in Bookmark, at least hard for some people who read the book, is that about two-thirds of the way through the book, I actually kind of become the villain of the story as I start to pull other people into my own strangely weird, partially psychotic relationship with books and my kind of attempt to bring their world into my world. And I, I hurt many people along the way uh, and so I think um, I think I wanted to tell that story I wanted to tell about the dangers of reading that it looks like something that it's safe to do on a cold night in front of a fireplace with a light but that reading in the end isn't safe it's it can be dangerous ideas are everywhere and the way we accept those ideas shouldn't be uncritically we should read with all our faculties intact as it were are there writers and or their stories that don't drive you mad <laughs> uh, i'm now i have no problem now I, <laughs> <laughs> now i've littered i when i was an academic for years i of course, you know, the whole PhD in English and, of course, what other thing would be open to me. And became an academic, got in a tenure-track job. Um, that story is told partly in the book how that works out. It's a very bad fit for me, the tenure-track job, because uh, I was hired by an institution, uh, a liberal arts college, which is where I wanted to be. But I was essentially hired <laughs> because I was the guy who they could call on the weekends uh, to pull the various brothers, the monks, out of the gay bars downtown and go get them and retrieve them when they had been sighted there. And so <laughs> it was a terrible, terrible thing. Me, a guy who thinks... That, um, uh, that, you know, 10 o'clock is late at night, having to traverse down to some bar at 1 in the morning and pull uh, a monk out of it. As, I, as I've said, you haven't lived your full life until you've pulled a monk in a cowl out of a gay bar at 1 a.m. Um, but uh, it was a bad fit. I stopped being an academic. I quit academia five years into my tenure track. I left. And uh, uh, eventually landed in this ongoing cookbook career with my husband, where we've published 35 cookbooks at this point. And uh, now books have roared back into my life. I lead all kinds of book groups. I lead literary seminars online. Uh, books have just roared, the great books have roared back into my life. But I'm in a much different place. And I'm in a place where I feel home and feel at home, and the book, I no longer look for messages about my life from the great works of Western literature. Now, we mentioned sort of parenthetically that you were reared in Texas by evangelicals. And I was. you've mentioned your husband at least a couple of times. And I, I'm, I'm just wondering about 
your understanding of your own sexuality because it would have mm. been against everything you were being told and taught and expected to do. It, it was. It's part of the story of that book and it, of my book, Bookmark. But it was against everything. But um, we were, my family, my, I was not reared in an abusive home. We were just a bad fit. Uh, we were not a very good fit with each other. Uh, they, you know, uh, I was this arty kid who, who ended up reading a lot and played a million musical instruments. And my dad was, you know, the just dyed in the wool tie wearing businessman who couldn't, had no understanding of me. And, um, they were evangelicals and I was not. I certainly did my best to fit in being uh, a young kid at oh, seven, eight, nine. I was preaching the gospel at county fairs and at, at Texas rodeos. So, which, all in that cowboy told, boots, I'm told. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I, mean, I got whole... pictures. I, I had pictures in my mind of young Sheldon. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was me, but. You know, um, I think that that in the end, the book I wrote is a comedy, and I don't mean a comedy that's it's funny. It is funny in parts, I guess, but I mean it's a comedy in that things work out for the players involved and in my memoir because they actually do in my own life, and I feel that a lot of that did work out. My father passed away uh, just this last summer, uh, but and he never uh, read the book and never got to see the book in print, uh, but... Uh, I have to say that my father's favorite person in the whole world is my current, was my current husband, is my current husband. My father loved him, I think, more than he loved his own sons. He was just head over heels over the guy I married. And um, he uh, he liked him. My mom, my mom's still around. My mom likes him, but God, not like my father did. And um, I think that it, it, we all come around, and you know, Mark, I don't, I don't know. Comedy is possible. Mark, I don't know if this is too deep a dive, but do you think the way your father felt about your husband was because your husband could do something for you that he couldn't? Oh, that's an interesting question. He repeatedly, my dad, again, he didn't understand having this arty kid. So my father repeatedly thanked Bruce, my husband, for taking care of me. Because, of course, my father couldn't imagine how I could ever survive in the world being this, you know, musical, <laughs> literary kid. How could I ever find my way through this world? So he constantly thanked Bruce for taking care of me. Uh because I think he worried about that. I think he thought that I couldn't make my way in the world. And um, and with some justification, given the book I wrote. Um, but still, nonetheless, I, I think that's part of it. I think that there is something about finding fulfillment in somebody that my dad actually liked and he liked seeing. Uh, and I think that my dad very much, you know, my dad was a, uh, not to put too too hard to spend on this, but my dad was a middle America, Trump-supporting, Republican, evangelical Christian, and I had married this crazy New York <laughs> Jewish guy who listened to Alan Sherman way too much. <laughs> um, 
and my father still not still in nonetheless had just an undying affection for for Bruce and I think you're right I think part of it was what he couldn't give me and I think part of it was that maybe Bruce understood me in ways that my dad never could and my dad was glad that someone that I had found someone like that and um uh, and I think my dad was also always grateful that his children were looked after, that his children were, you know, settled and happy. It sounds like your dad went through kind of a journey of his own. He did. He absolutely did. Um, and he, he, you know, my coming out with him was not easy. Uh, it was not easy with any member of my family. But it all settled down slowly and uh they came i was living in new york at the time and they came to new york to meet my husband and um well, we weren't husbands then the guy i was dating and they came to new york and to meet him and uh, the, uh, the thing about as we always laugh about is that my dad showed that uh, my parents were staying in this hotel and we came down to the hotel to meet them in the bar of the hotel for the first time and bruce my husband or not then just the guy i was dating but my future husband showed up and we always laugh at my dad was, first of all, undone that Bruce wasn't wearing organdy and lace and tulle or something. <laughs> and, <laughs> and secondly, in five minutes, my dad and Bruce were talking about, I don't know, changing the alternator in the car and, uh, you know, working on the car. And Bruce had just, had just done some car work himself on the car and they were talking about this and blah, blah, blah. And my Bruce is very mechanical and my dad wanted to hear all about the stuff he fixed. And, you know, I mean, it was, it was, Bruce didn't fit the stereotype. He didn't fit what my dad expected. He didn't expect to suddenly be talking about a guy and to a guy about alternators in a bar in New York, but there he was. When did you first uh, understand that you were gay? Um, well, it's a long story, and it, that's part of the story of Bookmarked. Um, uh, I, I don't still to this day fully identify as gay, uh, because I do as a political statement, but my sexuality is much stranger than that. And so I had all kinds of wild... Well, issues. you know why that is, Mark? It's because of all those books. <laughs> it was. It was. Uh, and uh, part of the story of Bookmarked is also the story of the women I fell in love with in my life and how that worked out. And not and not as a kind of situation in which I'm trying to hide myself, but women that I actually fully fell in love with. And uh, it's this kind of weird world in which books teach you that the world is binary or either or or yeah. this or that and my life isn't it's it's a mixed bag and uh i think that that's all part of it i always knew from a, from early on that i didn't fit i didn't quite understand how i didn't fit and just to say this probably saying it a lot but as as, it, as you would say a deep dive but you know a it, mo many, not all, by any stretch of the imagination, many adopted kids work very hard to fit. Because if I don't fit here, where do I fit in this world? Where, where's the place for me? And I work very hard at fitting in. Part of my journey 
is learning that it's okay not to fit in and that that for me home is a place where i can still <laughs> not exactly conform and not exactly fit in and that can still be called home and uh it's a, it's a, it's a long kind of strange journey and i say that, that journey happened because of books and in spite of books and underneath books and up above books all at the same time well this is a a fascinating story because it has so many parts to it i mean it's it part of your you know dealing with how you were brought up in texas you know with regard to yep morality and and religion and politics and 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 then this this sort of search for who are you where'd you come from what are you doing here and 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 then at the same time there's a lot of cool stuff about books and um, sexuality and and uh, and all of that and I think probably one of the most amazing things, Mark, is that you're willing to share this so openly with people. I what I worked for a long time with an editor. Thank you, uh, my book. Thank you for saying that. And um, I turned in a draft of bookmarked that I thought was unbelievably heroic, but I had just paraded around <laughs> everything about me and she sent the draft back to me and the only thing it said was the word that comes to mind is cowardice oh ouch as if i hadn't gone far enough and this is going to sound really funny uh, <laughs> just tell you but one of the things she told me to do and i'm n not making this up to get as vulnerable and open as possible is she told me <laughs> I laugh to spend part of each day naked I'm not kidding you <laughs> to spend part of each day with that to watch television without any clothes on to just do something without any clothes on and she said I want you to have that experience of, of oh, oh my god I'm sitting here without any clothes on watching TV or eating dinner, or looking at Facebook, I don't know, you name it. And she said, you know, I want you to have that experience of suddenly you realize that, oh my gosh, I don't have any clothes on, and then you go back to doing what you're doing. And she said, it will help you figure out the kind of emotional and bodily stance you have to take when you write your book. And she was right. It helped as a memoirist, I still don't quite know what that word means, but to help as a memoirist, figure out how to write the story and bear it because it helped me get comfortable <laughs> being bare. I know it's ridiculous. It was just like the most insane writing advice ever given. But I <laughs> but I took it to heart and I practiced it for a while and it was weird. I mean I don't just routinely walk around naked in my life and um <laughs> I guess most of us probably don't. And it it helped me understand that feeling of okay, I can get comfortable with this. Oh my gosh, I'm feeling too vulnerable. Okay, I can still be comfortable with this. It, it helped with that basic motivational pull that's inside of memoir. I, I'm sure that many people have a much easier time of it. I just had to figure out how to get as 
exposed, uh, no holds bar, no meat left on the bone as I could get. I, I met a screenwriter in uh, Los Angeles once who told me writing is easy. You just cut your wrists and bleed. <laughs> <laughs> And that just popped back into my head, Mark, as you were talking about the advice you got. Yeah, and and you have to, uh, and I would say that one of the most important things I learned, because I didn't learn it writing cookbooks, but I thought I understood books, having taught them for years and been driven to insanity by them and all of this stuff. I thought I got books, but I didn't until I tried to write my own. And one of the things that I learned was that I had to locate, this is going to sound weird, but I had to locate the book in my body. Like, where is it? And how does it work inside of me, not just inside my head? Um, I have a friend, the novelist Helen Klein Ross, and she she's a best-selling novelist, and she claims that she has a fiction clock in her chest and that when she no longer hears it ticking, she knows she's written something that's not right and that she has to go back and stop and wait until she can start hear it ticking again. And then she knows that she's writing well at that point. So again, somewhere in her body, there's a fiction clock. Well, I felt that, that somewhere in my body was this book. I, I remember hearing, um, I, we have got time for that, and I want to make sure and get in a couple of things here because you do a lot of stuff besides writing cookbooks and uh, and and watching television naked. Um, <laughs> Gee, I'm so glad that's out in the public now. Go on. <laughs> yeah, it, it, yeah. If you want to feel vulnerable, I'm glad to help. Um, but but in in all seriousness, uh, we just have a couple of minutes left, Mark, and I, and I want to make sure, as I do with all my guests, give you an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you, this book, but your cookbooks and your other work, past, present, mm -hmm. and future. Do you have a website? I do. It's Mark Scarborough, S-C-A-R-B-R-O-U-G-H, not like Scarborough Fair, but just two syllables, Scarborough. And it's markscarbro.com. And there's a list of uh, classes that I teach there. There's the list of our cookbooks. Um, and there's a, there's a links out to the podcasts that I host. Well, I you know, I noticed the spelling, Mark, of Scarborough, and I still managed to say it wrong at least two or three times. No, no, no. It's, <laughs> it, it's a strange telling. It goes, as everything in American history does, it goes back to the Civil War. So that's a long story, but <laughs> there you go. Just not like Scarborough Fair. Well, I was, I, I, I was going to say, you know, keep up the good work and, and uh, thanks for being here. And, and you should relax and read a book. But I thought maybe that wasn't the right advice. <laughs> <laughs> Since I'm on deadline for a cookbook, I think I have to go back to doing that because I think that that probably pays the mortgage. So I think that's probably what I'm back to. Well, again, the uh, name of the book is Bookmarked, How the Great Works of Western Literature Effed Up My Life, a memoir by Mark Scarborough, who is a New York Times bestselling cookbook author and so much more. Um, Mark, it's been a real pleasure talking with you and getting to know you a little bit. Thanks so much for spending this time with me and the listeners. 
and and I mean Thank it you. when I say keep up the good work. Thank you, Tom, for having me on. I so appreciate it. It was delightful to talk to you. <laughs> take care. Thanks. And we're going to take a short break and uh, let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us, we have some messages as well. Hey, <laughs> this is the Unknown Comic. And guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now. And now. And now, too. And even now. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines, since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Annan. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. The Tom Sumner Program is made possible with support from Seth David Radwell, a recent guest on the program and author of American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold a Secret to Healing Our Nation, released in July 2021. As Publishers Weekly writes in its recent glowing review of American Schism, business executive Radwell's epic debut examines the historical influences that have led to what he sees as the collapse of politics in the United States. Seth Radwell makes the case that the current chasm between the American right and left can be traced back to the 18th century's Age of Enlightenment and the basic tenets of liberty, equality, and reason. American Schism provides a historical perspective that can help bridge current day divides. American Schism by Seth David Radwell is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever books are sold. For more information, go to AmericanSchismBook.com. 
MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. Oh, but Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. <laughs> I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen in the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. She wheels her wheelbarrow through streets that are narrow. Her barrow is narrow, her hips are too wide. So wherever she wheels it, the neighborhood feels it. Her girdle keeps scraping the homes on each side. In Dublin's fair city, where girls are so pretty, my Molly stands out cause she weighs 18 stone. It's 256 pounds. I don't mind her fat, but... It's not only that, but she's cockeyed and muscle-bound, Molly Malone. I know a man, his name is Lang, and he has a neon sign. And Mr. Lang is very old, so they call it Old Lang Sign. <laughs> oh, what have you done, Billy Sal, Billy Sal? Oh, what have you done, charming Billy? You took almost every cent from the U.S. government, which you spent on fertilizer, which is silly. All day, all night, Cary Grant. That's all I hear from my wife is Cary Grant. What can he do that I can't? Big deal, big star, Cary Grant. (laughs) 
Oh, the moon is bright tonight upon the car wash. So I'm having my Volkswagen washed again. But the way things go with me, the way my luck runs, just as soon as they're finished, it will rain. On top of old Smokey, all covered with hair. Of course, I'm referring to Smokey the Bear. Here's a famous old folk song that you all know entitled Aura Lee. Every time you take vaccine, take it orally. As you know, the other way is more painfully. My grandfather's clock was the best ever made by the Timex company. Just like the clock John Cameron Swayze displayed last night on the old TV. Oh, it works underwater so perfectly, and it still makes a ticking sound, which my grandfather tried only this afternoon, and that's how the old man drowned. Do not make a stingy sandwich pile the cold cuts high. Customers should see salami coming through the ride. Oh, I diet all day and I diet all night. It's enough to drive me bats. Got no gravy or potatoes, cause the whole refrigerator's full of polyunsaturated fats. Fairly well, Metrical, and the others of that ilk. Let the diet start tomorrow, cause today I'll drown my sorrow in a double malted milk. Oh, when you go to the delicatessen store, don't buy the liverwurst. Don't buy the liverwurst. Don't buy the liverwurst. I repeat what I just said before. Don't buy the liverwurst. Don't buy the liverwurst. Oh, buy the corned beef if you must. The pickled herring you can trust. And the locks puts you in orbit. A-OK. -okay. But that big hunk of liverwurst has been there since October 1st. And today is the 23rd of May. So when you go to the delicatessen store, don't buy the liverwurst. Don't buy the liverwurst. Don't buy the liverwurst, it'll make your insides awful sore. Don't buy the liverwurst, don't buy the liverwurst! This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
it up for today's edition of the Tom Sumner program. Our Christmas music is better than everybody else's because it's local. I want to say thanks to all of the uh, authors on the show today, Mark Scarborough and uh, Joshua Melville, and of course uh, started out this morning with uh, David O. Stewart. All, uh, <laughs> all uh, memoirs, not really memoirs, but stories about their lives in different ways. Join us tomorrow for, uh, we've got economist Chris Douglas, followed by Armchair Politics with Jan Worth-Nelson joining our roundtable regulars. Good night, everybody. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show. We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. Most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. 
This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner Program. And thanks for listening.